Good morning, Seven Mile Road, 11 a.m. You got to be spared the heat, although it wasn't too bad at 9 a.m. The AC stopped working in here, and so uh, we were outside for nine, and now we're back in here, uh, which I'm thankful for. It feels great. Uh, in case we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Tyler Blue. I serve here as the Director of Equipping, and I'm really thankful to get to wrap up our series uh, in Jonah together. As I was preparing and thinking about this series in particular, thinking about Jonah, something came to my mind. There are questions that we are asked that will change our lives forever. Like all throughout life, we experience questions that are asked to us or of us that can actually change our life forever. They're formative type questions. One, for example, which I think I have a visual here, is if someone asks you to marry them. Uh, like here, me recreating what it was like when I asked my wife, Jessica, to marry me. Uh, not a lot of gray in the beard. This was almost 10 years ago, which is crazy to admit. I had a picture of my brother-in-law, Josh, who's here and decided not to do it because uh, he looked a lot younger. But uh, it's, crazy to, it's crazy to think about uh, all this time ago. And like how much this one question changed the course of both of our lives, our family's lives. We now have two boys together. Like there are humans in the world because of us and all of the sin and joy and everything that they're going to create in the world is, yes, God's sovereignty, but also because of us. And so what a crazy thought to think that this one single question of, Jessica, will you marry me, changed so much was so formative for two different people. Another simple question that a lot of us ask of kids around us or have uh, been asked ourselves is, what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, which I think I have another picture here. This is a picture of uh, Kid President. I don't know if you remember Kid President way back when. I looked, he's 17 years old now, which is crazy. I, maybe teenage president, I don't know. But I mean, I thought this was just such an amazing visualization of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be president. For me, it was, I, want to be, uh, I wanted to be an Air Force pilot. I have no idea why. I just thought it was cool for planes. And then I found out you can't really have bad eyesight <laughs> to be an Air Force pilot. But this question is a formative question, right? We're asked it at different points in our lives. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? These are examples of these types of questions, that the answers form us, that they transform us, that they, so much of who we are is, is set by our answers to this. What if I told you that the way in which you answer these types of questions is already set in your life? Not necessarily the answer, like, although I was pretty confident that my wife was, well, uh, almost wife, was going to say yes when I asked her, will you marry me? I was pretty confident. But the way in which she answered it, the tone of it, an another way to say it is like the emotion underneath it. Like, was she excited or was she scared? Like, that type of, of uh, intense type, life-changing forming question, the way in which she answered it, the tone of it, the emotion of it, was already set. Maybe said another way is maybe when you're at work and you have a coworker who asks you a question or says something to you or treats you in such a way that you feel devalued and disrespected and you respond aggressively towards them, which of course, duh, right? Like, wouldn't you? Like, they're messing with me, I'm going to mess with them a little back, you know? Like, this response of that, but then you can't help but think days after, like, man, I wish I didn't respond that way. Why did I respond that way? Why did I answer that way? Like, 
why was my emotion so aggressive there? Why was I so angry? Why did I feel so irritated? Why did I feel so frustrated? These examples that I'm mentioning to you, these questions, I think are a microcosm, an example for us in a lot of different areas of our life. The way in which we interact with the world, you interact with the world, I interact with the world, with the people around us are set in some respect by our experiences in our life, by how we perceive the world around us. These are an example of how we respond rather automatically to the different stimuli coming into our lives, the different relational realities coming into our life. It's just automatic. It's an automatic response. Not the yes to will you marry me, but the joy of it was automatic, or the fear of it was automatic, or the excitement of it was automatic, or the aggression towards a coworker automatic. These are automatic responses. Just like if I were to ask you, how many times have you blinked in the last 30 seconds, you couldn't tell me because you've already been blinking. For you high achievers, I know if you're already like, okay, how many times have I done this? So in case he asks again, I can have an answer. But the reality is, is that it's an automatic process. It's an automatic response. And this is how we show up in the world day in and day out, each and every one of us. The problem with this, as I have found in my own life, and I'm sure you might be feeling in some respects uh, as you're hearing this, is that often how I automatically respond to the things of my life gets in the way of how I experience and enjoy God's compassion. Let's just dial into the example of aggressive response with a coworker. Like in that moment, if you've had that experience ever, could we argue that we actually felt the compassion of God? No, I don't think we could. And it's things like this, time and time again, week after week, day after day, hour after hour, where we automatically respond to the things in our life and it gets in the way of how we actually enjoy God's compassion, that we get to enjoy a living God who is compassionate to us. The good news of Jonah 4 today, as we wrap this up, we've been laboring to answer this question. What happens when you begin to journey onto and into God's missionary heart? Well, the problem that's being exposed and that we are going to have answered for us is essentially on God's, on this journey into God's missionary heart, it will be revealed what is keeping us from enjoying God's compassion. If you are actually taking a step-by-step journey into God's missionary heart for you, His love for you, His compassion for you, then it will be revealed what's actually keeping you from enjoying it. This is hard and scary work but we're going to jump into it. And we're going to jump into it in a couple of ways. How God reveals this in you and in me and in us, Seven Mile Road, is by asking two questions out of Jonah 4. The first question is, how do you show up in life? How do you show up in life? If I were to pop quiz, ask you, well, maybe not you, but maybe someone that knows you, how does Tyler, if you were to ask my wife, show up in the world? What would they say? Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, which will be up on the screen. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, which we heard about last week, repent, turn away from their evil way, their wicked, violent ways, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. He did not do it. God was compassionate to the Ninevites. God gave them compassion. And so here's a quick definition of compassion for us just to work and kind of anchor our mind into as we use this term. Compassion can be utilized as mercy. 
the idea that you don't get what you deserve to get in a negative kind of way, in a punitive type way, that if you were to like hit me in the face and I don't hit back, some might argue <laughs> that you might deserve a good jab back, and I technically have the power and right therein to do that, but I don't do it. That's mercy. That's the idea of compassion in some respect. God's compassion for Nineveh here was that he was merciful. Another way to show it is, or another way to say it is to show concern for, which is true all throughout Jonah. Jonah was called in Jonah chapter 1 by God because the evil, wicked, violent ways of the Ninevites came up before God and he wanted to stop them. He wanted to save them. God showed concern for this people group. Another way to say God's compassion is to be loved by. To be loved by. God loved the Ninevites when he saw them repent and turn away from their wicked, violent, evil ways. He didn't bring disaster upon them. It's a showing of love in that, that tender care in that moment. And what we see as we begin to start taking apart this first question that God's going to use to reveal how, why we're not enjoying his compassion is how do you show up in your life? And how do you show up in your life when God's compassionate plans are accomplished? And God's compassionate plans are becoming uh, unveiled before you. You see what we see with our friend Jonah, Jonah chapter 4 verse 1, but it, and the but it is the compassion. God's compassion, that's the it that's there, is the compassion of God. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. The literal translation of this phrase is he was angry and exceedingly angry. Like the emotion, the Hebrew writer couldn't quite wrap the full rage of what Jonah was experiencing, being met face to face with God's compassion for this people group. But this is what is happening. Jonah is showing up angry right now. He's entering into relationship with God in this moment angry. Here's what I mean by showing up. Last term we wanted to find to have mental anchors for us this morning. What do I mean by showing up? Showing up is the automatic response that we've been talking about. It's the automatic response to the world around us, to people around us, to situations around us. When I say showing up, I mean how are you automatic, how are you blinking through life and don't even know it? An example of this, even in my own life, was like this weekend. My wife was gone to Palm Springs on a girl's trip, which was much needed. She hasn't taken a trip in like two years. We have a year and a half year old twin boys, and she works, and I work, and I was like, go, enjoy, have fun. So I was solo for like four days with two toddlers, and they're awesome babies, and they're really great, but they are like hungry and want milk and all sorts of awesome fun things and want, they've learned how to like kind of push each other when they don't get their way and in the chaos of like okay how do I keep them safe how do we do this how do we do this how do we do this I was feeding them and usually I do this often where I give them milk and I'm pouring I get the gallon of milk out and I begin pouring it in the cup and I screw the lid on tight typically I put the cup in front of them this time I put the gallon of milk on their high chair I just automatically did that. I just like, in all of the chaos around me in the moment, and it wasn't them, it was me like just trying to think, okay, what do I do next? And what is, because I'm not as gifted or talented as, as their mom and my wife. I'm like, how do I just keep treading water here? And I did this and Shepard looks at me and he's like super confused. <laughs> as confused as an 18 month old can be. He's just like, what is, how do I take this? And then he got excited because he's like, this is new. And I grab it from him. 
what's crazy though is I put the cup of milk in the fridge. Like I went through the whole process. I just switched the gallon in the cup. And in that moment, I showed up confused. I showed up distracted. I showed up and didn't put things in the right place in order. This is what I mean by the word showing up. And what God is trying to do and reveal in us when we're on this missionary journey with Him is you cannot enjoy His compassion. I cannot enjoy His compassion. Seven mile word, we cannot enjoy His compassion if we don't know how we show up in life. If we're blind to it. If we're just going on blinking and don't recognize what we're blinking, what we're doing, and what we're saying, and the potential relational ruin that's around us. For Jonah, for him... He would fit the definition of, in Romans 7.15 that the Apostle Paul has here of what I think showing up theologically looks like. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul is talking about an automatic response. It's our automatic sin response. All of us have been affected by Genesis 3. The disobedience that we bring, that Adam and Eve brought, that we are responsible for all of us, so much so that sin, the way that if it were a color, and I told you to close your eyes, and all of a sudden you could see this particular color, say sin was green, and you opened your eyes, everything would be green. Like it's all tainted by this reality. And our automatic response is how we show up in relationship and in the world around us, how we perceive these things is very similar. It is Romans 7. And Jonah is right in the middle of this. He's exceedingly angry and angry. Like he's angry about being angry and he's just showing up all over the place and he's displeased. What I am thankful for with my friend Jonah here in verse 2, it says, and he prayed. This is a signal, if you've been with us from Jonah 1, this is a signal of change in our friend's heart here. (laughs) Because in Jonah 1, when God started to press on him. He didn't pray. He left. He fled 2,500 miles in the other direction, got on a boat, went to the bottom, fell asleep in the middle of a crazy storm that was trying to kill him and everyone on, on, on board. And he didn't, he didn't speak with God. This time we see a change, which we're thankful for. And he begins to bring this complaint and this anger to God. At the same time, though, we must be honest about what this looks like. He is not enjoying God's compassion. Look at, look at it here with me in chapter, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 2. And he says, and he prayed to the Lord, and this is what he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, 2,500 miles, for I knew that you are... Do you see what Jonah's doing here? He's blame-shifting to God. He is not enjoying God's compassion one bit. Instead, he's blaming God for God's compassion. He's saying, God, the reason why I disobeyed is because I knew you would do this. You are who you are. So the reason why I left, it's your fault that I fled and ended up in a fish, ended up vomited, and ended up in the city of Nineveh, and ended up preaching. It's your fault, God. This is his automatic risk. This is how he is showing up. Then... The irony of Jonah here is he begins to sarcastically, this is the way it is written in the language, sarcastically list out the characteristics of God. That God expressed to his people of Israel in Exodus. This is what he says. This is why I did this. For I knew, verse 2, that you are a gracious God, 
merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is saying, it is better for me to not exist in this world anymore that because of your compassionate characteristics. This is what Jonah is saying. This is how he's showing up in his relationship with God and essentially everyone else around him. I mean, he's in the city at the moment. <laughs> I almost wonder if, it doesn't say, I wonder if he's saying this out loud, you know? Like, how he is showing up in this particular time and place. And as he lists this char- God's character out as defective, what's crazy is it's an exact mirror to Jonah about how defective and weak his character is. Gracious is an attitude toward those who don't deserve a loving and gracious attitude. It's an attitude towards those undeserving that you may not deserve my lavish thoughts and gifts and love towards you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Graciousness. God did this to Jonah. God did this to Ninevites. Jonah is saying, God, this this is why I'm angry, because of this for you. Thus not being gracious. Compassionate, just like we said, loving, merciful, showing concern, Jonah's nowhere near being compassionate right now in any way, shape, or form. And he's saying this to God as some defective characteristic. Slow to anger. Jonah is quick to rage. He's not patient and long-suffering like God is here. Like, think about God's journey with Jonah from chapter 1 to chapter 4. I mean, God, could you not find anyone anyone else more faithful in the world besides this guy? Like, could anyone else have answered the call? But you see, that's not the point. The point was, God wanted Nineveh saved, but he also wanted Jonah saved. God wanted Nineveh saved, but he changed, but he also wanted Jonah changed. God was abounding in steadfast love as an accusation that Jonah's giving to him. His covenant love of God, the kindness, the word hesed is used here in the Hebrew. It's kindness and loyalty and unfailing love, which Jonah is not showing any regard to right now. You see, Jonah is showing up in a way that I don't think is far off for you or I. Like if I were to ask you to pay attention to the blinking of your emotional and spiritual life, your relational life, what would you find there? Would you find avoidance? Would you find anxiety and anger? Would you find a blame shifting to God? Would you find lack of graciousness and mercy? Would you find a lack of compassion? Would you find these realities? And for me, brothers and sisters, Seven Mile Road, this work has been painful, deep work in my life for the past couple of years. For those of you who have known me um, or have had a chance to know me or have heard my story, you know, my wife and I and a small church planning team, we, we were sent out of this church back in, I think it was 2018, 2019 can't remember, it's fuzzy these days, <laughs> somewhere around then. Planted church in Missouri City, Sugarland area, and God was faithful, and we were getting to do that work, and it was awesome and amazing. Two months before we launched our Sunday gathering weekly, uh, my wife and I had a miscarriage. First pregnancy, we had a miscarriage. I mean, imagining what that could feel like, I mean, for us, first pregnancy, we were like so excited, and then within a few days, it was gone. Then six months later, thankfully, celebratory, we found out we were pregnant, and we found out we were pregnant, we thought it was one, and then three weeks later, we found out it was twins. So, I mean, it was like celebratory. We're like, yes, this is awesome. Like, God, you're so kind to us. And then we find out it's a high-risk pregnancy. 
And we have to go to the doctor every week to check on the boys. Check on their fluids, check on their growth, check to make sure that everything's okay. Which at 9 a.m. I saw a couple of friends that are here and work at TCH and some of, some of them were in the room with us in these scans, just praying for us and talking with us. All the while we're planting a church, which is hard work. Any business people out there starting anything is hard. Starting a church, I think, is even more hard because <laughs> you're just you're in the spiritual grind of it all and you're doing this and you're trying to be faithful and all the while this emotional churn is happening in my wife and I's life. Through some research and wisdom and guidance, we were like, you know, I think Tyler probably needs to take a break for about six months once the boys are here because <laughs> twins are hard work. They're lo- it's great work, but it's hard work. So we decide with the council of the elders here, you know, we're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to come back into Seven Mile Road and we're going we're gonna to be a part of house churches here and we're just so excited to do that. Boys are born March 3rd, 2020, healthy, good. We get home. My wife's starting her kind of rougher road to recovery and then about, I don't know what, 10 days later from March 3rd, everything shuts down. COVID. I would tell you that that doesn't feel like God's concern for me. That doesn't feel like God's love for me or his mercy for me. It, feel, it felt like I was being punished over and over and over again. And some of you, even as I'm saying it, although different in circumstance, might feel something similar. But how I can now, a year and a half from then, get to a place where I'm like, that was God's compassion, is because God's compassion forced me to ask the question, how are you showing up in your life, Tyler? For me, my medication and how I show up for life is anger. Not rage as in like yelling. I'm not a yelling type of guy. But my words, they come out pretty thick and pretty strong and pretty hurtful. And of course, I'm all alone, so the person who's getting the brunt of this is my wife, who I asked, hey, do I have permission to share all this? She's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and that anger comes out starts with frustration and irritation, it graduates to anger, and then it comes out as wrath. I want you to feel what I feel in this moment. And it took the tears of my wife on New Year's Day this year to be like, Tyler, I need you to start paying attention to how you're automatically responding to me and to those around you. I need you to pay attention to how you're showing up. And if I were to take stock and ask the question, how was I showing up in my life then? And was I enjoying God's care for me, His love for me, His mercy for me? I would tell you emphatically, no. I was not enjoying God. I was not enjoying His compassion because I didn't know how I was showing up and I was more focused on that, being, being right, proving that I'm right in more ways than I wish I could ever say. I share this story because where God's plans, as we're seeing in Jonah and as we're seeing in my story, and I'm sure in so many of y'all's stories, where God's plans are continuing to work, His compassion is continuing to be revealed, where His plans are being accomplished, you might not be able to see it right now, but the friction and frustration that you feel in your life, I would bet, is God chasing you. Will you stop and ask the question, how are you showing up in life? How are you showing up? We need God to do this work in us. We need Him to reveal this to us, just like He does with Jonah. You know, He, he, he ends verse 4 with, Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? God's responding to His showing up in this moment. And I think He does this in a couple ways in our lives. And 
here's what I would ask you to engage in this with me. Your prayer life. Verse 2, Jonah prayed. Like Jonah would not be able to be, as we're about to get to, parented by God if it wasn't that he opened his mouth and showed up with God, even, even if it wasn't a good way of showing up. Even if it wasn't good, he opened his mouth and he began engaging with God. He prayed. And so, just like Jonah 2, I'm going to beg and implore you, if you have a prayerless life, start praying. Not out of some religious obligation, but because God will meet you there. If you slow down and begin actually sharing with him what's going on in your life, dare to believe that the God of the universe will meet you in that prayer time. Just engage. Even if, it, even if you don't know how to say it, even if it's not perfect, just start. I would also beg of you and implore you to spend time in his word. Jonah, being able to sarcastically list out God's characteristics of graciousness and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is because he knew God's word. It's from Exodus 34. This, Jonah knew it. There was no question about it. And God, using His Word, speaks to you. I'm not asking you to do that because of religious obligation, but because I believe, the writers of Hebrews, that God's Word is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. And if you actually sit down and interact with it, it will change your life. It's changed mine. It will reveal how you show up in the world. Silence and solitude. This one has been, ooh, friends. Inner loop, friends. <laughs> Houstonian friends. It is a prized possession to be working 60, 65, 70 hour work weeks. I don't see Jesus doing that in his scripture. I see him getting away. I see him finding times of silence. I see him finding times of solitude. And I see him meeting with his heavenly father. And if you want to reveal and be revealed of how you're showing up in life, I think you have to slow down the busyness and you have to stop worshiping that and begin moving your heart and affections towards God. And I'm speaking to myself right here. I pride myself on a hard work week, y'all. I do. There's nothing wrong with hard work, but if it gets in the way of spending time with your Father in heaven, ooh. The last way in which I think God helps us begin asking this question is in community. We say every Sunday that we, are, we gather together as a family of house churches to celebrate the risen Lord. Like We are a family of house churches. If you are in a house church this week, Sunday, Wednesday, I know it might be meal night, this week or next week, whenever, no, even if it is meal night, if this week, go to someone in your house church and start saying, hey, can you start doing this work with me? I want to know how, to sh- how I'm showing up in life. I want to know how I'm showing up in our relationship. I want to know what this looks like. If it were not for my wife being a mirror in front of me, I would be honest with you. I don't think I would notice I was blinking in anger and irritation and frustration. If you're not in a house church, please find yourself in one. And do this work too. At first, this first question, this revealing, as we all can feel it, feels really anxiety-inducing it's deep work and we all feel exposed but it's good work so on this journey into God's mission or heart he will reveal what is keeping us from enjoying God's compassion by asking us two questions first question was how are you showing up in life the second question is what are you going to do about it 
Look here with me, Jonah 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Do you do well to show up this way? Are you finding joy and happiness? Do you feel at peace with what's going on right now? Jonah doesn't say a word. He goes out of the city. He sits to the east of the city and he made a booth, verse 5, of himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah shows up not only angry, but he shows up just like he did with Jonah 1. He leaves. He doesn't say anything. He, he runs away. Now, I want you to imagine with me what this might look like. Okay, Nineveh is kind of in the middle of like a deserty type area, Mesopotamia. The mean temperature, so the average of averages, is 110 degrees. 110 degrees. So if we believe this text literally true, then what it means is that he got up on an elevated area so he would have less cover, less shade, less shelter, so he could see what would happen to the Ninevites. That means he got up in potentially 110 degree weather or more, and he had to build himself a little booth of shade to do that. Jonah showing up and avoiding God's question of, do you do well to be angry? He put his own life at risk. And friends, all of us do this. All of us do this. When we refuse to actually do anything about how we're showing up, we're putting our relational lives at risk, our spiritual lives at risk, because we cannot enjoy God's compassion if we don't know how we're showing up. And so what we see here with Jonah is he goes out and he does this. The same word here for see in verse 5 is the same word used in verse 10 where it says God saw. It's the same word. So yeah, Jonah doesn't respond with words, but he responds with action. He, it's essentially like, okay, God, I think I'm going to be proved right. I think I'm justified in how I responded. I think I'm justified in how I feel right now. To put it in our terms, God, like, you don't know what it was like to grow up in my family. You don't know what it was like to experience what I experienced. You don't know what I've been through, what my, what my place of work is like. I, like I'm just going to get up here and, like, God, like, look, watch. God, look, the Ninevites are going to become wicked and evil again, and you're going to have to destroy them. <laughs> Jonah is emphatically telling God and responding to his question, to, do you do well to be angry? Yes, I do well to be angry. And watch. You will be proved wrong, and I will be proved right. So what we see here is a defiant Jonah saying, prove me wrong. And he's out in the elements, and he's risking death and further relational ruin between him and God and others by how he's showing up right now. I was reminded of uh, a favorite story and book of, uh, that I love is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm not like a huge C.S. Lewis, like, scholar nerd. <laughs> I know some people really love him, but I love Narnia. I love it. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I found this illustrated picture here as I was looking through it. White Witch, Edmund. I was specifically thinking about Edmund when I was thinking about this in particular. Like, what are you going to do about how you're showing up? Early on, if you read The Lion, the Witch, or the Wardrobe, or you've seen the movie, which if you've seen the movie not read, I would encourage you to read, read the books better. Uh, as you're reading through the first pages, you recognize Edmund is struggling. He is on the struggle bus. Like the very definition of struggle bus, that is Edmund right now with his, with his three other siblings. And it makes sense, right? Like it's set in World War II, and so his parent, they're separated from their parents, 
because of the war effort and because of safety and with all the bombings in London and where they live. And so, I mean, like this, this poor kid's like life has just been completely uprooted and up, upheaved. What's interesting, though, is the author, C.S. Lewis, literally says of Edmund that he is spiteful. He's spiteful. And we see Edmund show up spiteful. Lucy goes into the wardrobe, the, the littlest, and she meets her friend, Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, and Narnia, discovers this land, comes out, shares it with her siblings, like, oh my gosh, you guys have got to come with me. And what does Edmund do? He shows up spiteful. He starts insulting her, making fun of her. She's hurt, she cries, and she runs back into the wardrobe, and he is forced to go find her and apologize to her. <laughs> and so he goes through, and he doesn't find Lucy, and he's in the cold, and he's in the elements, but he does find the white witch who comes across. Whole banter that's there, but what stood out to me most was not only is he spiteful, but she asks him, hey, what do you desire most to eat right now to be comfortable? He says, a box of Turkish delights. <laughs> so she gives him Turkish delights, and he's just eating, and this allows her to ask him more questions, and he's just showing up more and more spiteful because he's not thinking. He's just giving in to his comfort over and over again to where he finally says there's nothing special about them anyway. This is his siblings. Because she's trying to get them to all go to her palace. And he, she keeps asking him to bring them, bring them, bring them. And he's eating and eating and eating. And he's like, he finally snaps, automatically shows up and says, there's nothing special about them anyway, my siblings. Why do you want them? And I was thinking about that for me. It's like, oh, my anger is Turkish delight. <laughs> To me, it's just me. Like, I feel justified in this. Like, God, just wait. Like, I, you'll be proved wrong. I'll be proved right. I'm right to be angry right now. And for all of you, I think there is a Turkish delight that is trying to pull your attention away from how you show up and in, away from dealing with it. And instead, you go outside of the city, you risk death, you risk relational ruin, and you make a booth that is not going to withhold and stand up to the elements, and you just sit there, and you medicate. What are you going to do about how you show up? Thankfully, God doesn't give up that easily. <laughs> this is good news. So what does God do? Even though Jonah runs away, he appoints a plant, a worm, and a scorching east end. Uh, east wind. And this, wasn't, this is not the beginning of a joke. <laughs> he, he appoints a plant, a, warm, a worm, and a scorching east wind. And this word appoint is the same word that was used in chapter 2 when God appointed the fish. It means that God has the power to accomplish his will no matter what. So God unleashes his power to accomplish his will in Jonah's life to reveal to him what's keeping him from enjoying God's compassion that he just witnessed 120,000 souls turned and, and not destroyed. He begins appointing a shade. And Jonah, we see an emotional flip here. We see him no longer exceedingly angry, but exceedingly glad. It's the same literal translation. He was glad, he was rejoicing and exceedingly rejoicing. It's like the emotion, it's like the ups and downs that he's in at this moment. The shade, this comfort did you see what it says here, though? In verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over jo jo Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. The ESV footnote in discomfort is, or his evil. 
maybe another way to say it, God appoints a shade over him to save him from how he's showing up. And the next thing he does, and this is what I would argue, God appointed the shade so he could take the shade away. (laughs) Because the very next thing, what does he do? He appoints a worm, and the worm eats the plant. And then God appoints a scorching east wind that literally kicks up the heat to the point where Jonah has nothing left to do but feel faint, and he finally cries out as we see in verse 8, it's better for me to die than to live. God is screaming to Jonah, Jonah, what are you going to do about how you're showing up right now? You cannot just sit here in this booth you have made for yourself and not think that I'm not going to come after you because I love you. What are you going to do about it? What we see is this beautiful picture of God asking Jonah, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Same question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah's like, yes, I do. I do feel well well to be angry for the plant. And then God and his beauty and fathering and disciplining says, should I not care in the same way for 120,000 souls as you do for a plant that you had no control over, that you didn't create, that you couldn't bring to yourself, and you couldn't destroy for yourself? Should I not? Jonah, should you not? Seven Mile Road, what are we going to do about the way in which we show up? This is what God ends the book of Jonah with. Most child stories that we see. What I was taught was the fish vomited Jonah, Jonah went to Nineveh, he preached, they were saved. Then the end. The end of Jonah is not that. The end of Jonah is going after us. Jonah. Leaving us with a mirror to say, hey, this is how you show up in the world. Now what are you going to do about it? We cannot read Jonah and actually walk away the same. We have to ask the question, what are we going to do about this? What's amazing about the story of Edmund, as I was thinking about it even more within Narnia, was, you know, eventually, if you know the story, he betrays his family, and then he tries to get out of the grips of the White Witch because he realized what he's done. And Aslan, who has done nothing but love him and give him compassion, who's the Christ-like figure in this story in particular, Edmund is essentially wrapped up. This is where this picture was, if I could have it back up. This is the picture of Edmund that I showed It's him going to the stone table. Essentially the old magic of Narnia, the law underneath, that if you disobey, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, if you aren't acting the way you're supposed to act, then you must go to the stone table. And this is what it is. You see Edmund just enslaved by his spitefulness, enslaved by how he shows up. And Aslan, who never did anything to him, what does he do? He interrupts it, and he goes on the stone table instead. And this is what Jesus has done for you and I. Seven Mile Road, we could never show up the way we're supposed to. Never. In my family, I will never be able to show up the way I ought to. Because of my automatic response, I do what I hate. You do what you hate. Jesus knew that, and that's why he stepped into time. God made flesh walking with us, experiencing what we experience, feeling what we feel, angry, but angry in a good way. Getting away, but getting away for good reasons. 
working hard but not working to worship. We see Jesus doing everything and showing up in the way that, that we were supposed to but we never could because of Genesis 3 in a post-Genesis 3 world. And C.S. Lewis writing Aslan, writing Edmund to show that we were him, to show that we are Jonah. Jesus being our better, older brother than Jonah steps in and shows us compassion and he goes to the cross where we were supposed to be. On this journey into God's missionary heart, it will be revealed. It will be revealed what is keeping you from enjoying his compassion. How you show up is keeping you from how you are enjoying his compassion. And what are you going to do about it? I would beg of you to look to Jesus. Because there's nothing you can do about it apart from him. So friends, if you have been wrestling with the claims of Christ, if you have not yet put your whole life trust in Jesus, I would say don't be like Edmunds, wrapped in your spitefulness and anger and laziness and power hunger and control and manipulation. Don't be wrapped and enslaved in that. There's a better way. There is one who went before us who took on every aspect of our sin, shame, and death for us. He rose three days later showing his victory over sin, shame, and death. Victory over, for, over the reality is I do what I hate and I don't do what I want to do. This Jesus did this for us and he's inviting us in. Followers of Jesus, praise be to God for Jesus' forgiveness. It does not stop at the cross. It does not stop at the cross as a disciple. How Jesus cares deeply about how you show up in the world. He wants you to start asking if Jesus had my kids and my wife and my job and my roommates and my cell phone and my work, how would Jesus live my life? That's what it means now after we've placed our faith in Him to actually be a disciple of Him, to be a learner of Jesus. This is what He's inviting us into. This is what we get to do about it. We either get to go out and expose ourselves to the dangers of our not figuring out how we show up in the elements and our Turkish delights or we get to be brought into loving communion with a God who loves us, loves you, shows concern for you, has shown mercy to you through His Son, Jesus. May it be so in our life, Seven Mile. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy, God. Jesus, that you, you relented our disaster, our spiritual disaster. You treated us with compassion, with concern, with love. You stepped into time. You loved us to the point of death, death on a cross. And you rose three days later showing that sin, shame, and death has no power and control over us. We are not wrapped up like the character Edmund. We are not wrapped up in how we show up in our life. God, you have given us power to change through your Son, Jesus Christ, his work on the cross and your Holy Spirit in us. Father, I pray for my friends who are wrestling with the claims of Christ. Open their hearts. Open their eyes and ears to hear and see that they could be enjoying your compassion 
enjoying a living God who created everything. For those of us who are followers of you already, Jesus, disciples, help us begin to enjoy your compassion for us. A life of enjoyment because we are doing the hard, deep soul work of figuring out how we show up in the world. We love you, Jesus. We're thankful for your life, your death, and your resurrection. It's in your name we pray. Amen.